Book One, Chapter Five of Off on a Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Longman. Off on a Comet by Jules Verne. Translated by Anonymous. Book One, Chapter Five. A Mysterious Sea. Violent as the commotion had been that portion of the Algerian coast which is bounded on the north by the Mediterranean and on the west by the right bank of the Shelif, appeared to have suffered little change. It is true that indentations were perceptible in the fertile plain, and the surface of the sea was ruffled with an agitation that was quite unusual. But the rugged outline of the cliff was the same as heretofore, and the aspect of the entire scene appeared unaltered. The stone hostelry, with the exception of some deep clefts in its walls, had sustained little injury, but the gorby, like a house of cards destroyed by an infant's breath, had completely subsided, and its two inmates lay motionless, buried under the sunken thatch. It was two hours after the catastrophe that Captain Servadac regained consciousness. He had some trouble to collect his thoughts, and the first sounds that escaped his lips were the concluding words of the rondo which had been so ruthlessly interrupted. Constant ever I will be, constant. His next thought was to wonder what had happened, and in order to find an answer he pushed aside the broken thatch, so that his head appeared above the debris. The gorby leveled to the ground, he exclaimed. Surely a water spout has passed along the coast. He felt all over his body to perceive what injuries he had sustained, but not a sprain nor a scratch could he discover. "'Where are you, Ben Zuf?' he shouted. "'Here, sir!' and with military promptitude a second head protruded from the rubbish. "'Have you any notion what has happened, Ben Zuf?' "'I have a notion, Captain, that it's all up with us.' "'Nonsense, Ben Zuf. It's nothing but a water-spout.' "'Very good, sir,' was the philosophical reply, immediately followed by the query. "'Any bones broken, sir?' "'None whatever,' said the captain. Both men were soon on their feet, and began to make a vigorous clearance of the ruins, beneath which they found that their arms, cooking utensils, and other property had sustained little injury. "'By the way, what o'clock is it?' asked the captain. Well, "'It must be eight o'clock at least,' said Ben Zuf, looking at the sun, which was a considerable height above the horizon. It is almost time for us to start. To start? What for? To keep your appointment with Count Timoshev. By Jove, I had forgotten all about it, exclaimed Servadac. Then, looking at his watch, he cried, What are you thinking of, Ben Zuf? It's scarcely two o'clock. Two in the morning or two in the afternoon? asked Ben Zuf, again, regarding the sun. Servadac raised his watch to his ear. "'It is going,' said he. "'But by all the wines of Medoc I am puzzled. "'Don't you see the sun is in the west? "'It must be near setting.' "'Setting, Captain? "'Why, it's rising finely, like a conscript at the sound of the reveille. "'It's considerably higher since we've been talking.' "'Incredible as it might appear, "'the fact was undeniable that the sun was rising over the shelf "'from that quarter of the horizon behind which it usually sank.' for the latter portion of its daily round. They were utterly bewildered. Some mysterious phenomenon must not only have altered the position of the sun in the sidereal system, but must have even brought about an important modification of the earth's rotation on her axis. Captain Servadac consoled himself with the prospect of reading an explanation of the mystery in next week's newspapers, 
and turned his attention to what was to him of more immediate importance. "'Come, let us be off,' he said to his orderly. "'Though heaven and earth be topsy-turvy, I must be at my post this morning.' "'To do Count Timoshev the honor of running him through the body,' added Ben Zuf. If Servadac and his orderly had been less preoccupied, they would have noticed that a variety of other physical changes, besides the apparent alteration in the movement of the sun, had been evolved during the atmospheric disturbances of that New Year's night. As they descended the steep footpath leading from the cliff towards the shelf, they were unconscious that their respiration became forced and rapid, like that of a mountaineer when he has reached an altitude where the air has become less charged with oxygen were also unconscious that their voices were thin and feeble. Either they must themselves have become rather deaf, or it was evident that the air had become less capable of transmitting sound. The weather, which on the previous evening had been very foggy, had entirely changed. The sky had assumed a singular tint, and was soon covered with lowering clouds that completely hid the sun. There were indeed all the signs of a coming storm, but the vapor, on account of the insufficient condensation, failed to fall. The sea appeared quite deserted, a most unusual circumstance along this coast, and not a sail nor a trail of smoke broke the gray monotony of water and sky. The limits of the horizon, too, had become much circumscribed. On land, as well as on sea, the remote distance had completely disappeared, and it seemed as though the globe had assumed a more decided convexity. At the pace at which they were walking, it was very evident that the captain and his attendant would not take long to accomplish the three miles that lay between the Gorby and the place of rendezvous. They did not exchange a word, but each was conscious of an unusual buoyancy which appeared to lift up their bodies and give, as it were, wings to their feet. If Ben Zuf had expressed his sensations in words, he would have said that he felt up to anything, and he had even forgotten to taste so much as a crust of bread, a lapse of memory of which the worthy soldier was rarely guilty. As these thoughts were crossing his mind, a harsh bark was heard to the left of the footpath, and a jackal was seen emerging from a large grove of lentisks. Regarding the two wayfarers with manifest uneasiness, the beast took up its position at the foot of a rock more than thirty feet in height. It belonged to an African species distinguished by a black spotted skin and a black line down the front of the legs. At night-time, when they scour the country in herds, the creatures are somewhat formidable, but singly they are no more dangerous than a dog. Though by no means afraid of them, Ben Zuf had a particular aversion to jackals, perhaps because they had no place among the fauna of his beloved Montmartre. He accordingly began to make threatening gestures, when to the unmitigated astonishment of himself and the captain the animal darted forward, and in one single bound gained the summit of the rock. "'Good heavens!' cried Ben Zuf. "'That leap must have been thirty feet, at least.' "'True enough,' replied the captain. "'I never saw such a jump.' Meantime the jackal had seated itself upon its haunches, and was staring at the two men with an air of impudent defiance. This was too much for Ben Zuf's forbearance, and stooping down he caught up a huge stone, when, to his surprise, he found that it was no heavier than a piece of petrified sponge. "'Confound the brute!' he exclaimed. I might as well throw a piece of bread at him. What accounts for its being as light as this? Nothing daunted, however, he hurled the stone into the air. It missed its aim, but the jackal, deeming it on the whole prudent to decamp, disappeared across the trees and hedges with a series of bounds, 
which could only be likened to those that might be made by an India rubber kangaroo. Ben Zuf was sure that his own powers of propelling must equal those of a howitzer, for his stone, after a lengthened flight through the air, fell to the ground full five hundred paces the other side of the rock. The orderly was now some yards ahead of his master, and had reached a ditch full of water, about ten feet wide. With the intention of clearing it, he made a spring, when a loud cry burst from Servadac. Ben Zuf, you idiot! What are you about? You'll break your back! And well he might be alarmed, for Benzoff had sprung to a height of forty feet into the air. Fearful of the consequences that would attend the descent of his servant to terra firma, Servadac bounded forwards to be on the other side of the ditch in time to break his fall. But the muscular effort that he made carried him in his turn to an altitude of thirty feet. In his ascent he passed Benzoff, who had already commenced his downward course and then, obedient to the laws of gravitation, he descended with increasing rapidity, and alighted upon the earth without experiencing a shock greater than if he had merely made a bound of four or five feet. Ben Zuf burst into a roar of laughter. "'Bravo!' he said. "'We should make a good pair of clowns!' But the captain was inclined to take a more serious view of the matter. For a few seconds he stood lost in thought, and then said solemnly, "'Ben Zuf, I must be dreaming. Pinch me hard. I must either be asleep or mad. It is very certain that something has happened to us, said Benzoff. I've occasionally dreamed that I was a swallow flying over the Montmartre, but I never experienced anything of this kind before. It must be peculiar to the coast of Algeria. Servadac was stupefied. He felt instinctively that he was not dreaming, and yet was powerless to solve the mystery. He was not, however, the man to puzzle himself for long over any insoluble problem. Come what may, he presently exclaimed, we will make up our minds for the future to be surprised at nothing. Right, Captain, replied Ben Zuf, and first of all, let us settle our little score with Count Timoshev. Beyond the ditch lay a small piece of meadow land, about an acre in extent. A soft and delicious herbage carpeted the soil, whilst trees formed a charming framework to the whole. No spot could have been chosen more suitable for the meeting between the two adversaries. Servadac cast a hasty glance around. No one was in sight. We are the first on the field, he said. Not so sure of that, sir, said Ben Zuf. What do you mean? asked Servadac, looking at his watch, which he had set as nearly as possible by the sun before leaving the gorby. It is not nine o'clock yet. Look up there, sir. I am much mistaken if that is not the sun. And as Ben Zuf spoke, he pointed directly overhead to where a faint white disk was dimly visible through the haze of clouds. Nonsense! exclaimed Servadac. How could the sun be in the zenith in the month of January in latitude thirty-nine degrees north? Can't say, sir. I only know the sun is there and at the rate he's been travelling I would lay my cap to a dish of couscous that in less than three hours he will have set. Hector Servadac, mute and motionless, stood with folded arms. Presently he roused himself and began to look about again. What means all this? he murmured. Laws of gravity disturbed, points of the compass reversed, the length of day reduced one-half. Surely this will indefinitely postpone my meeting with the Count. Something has happened. Ben Zuf and I cannot both be mad. The orderly, meantime, surveyed his master with the greatest equanimity, 
No phenomenon, however extraordinary, would have drawn from him a single exclamation of surprise. "'Do you see anyone, Benzoff?' asked the captain at last. "'No one, sir. The Count has evidently been and gone.' "'But supposing that to be the case,' persisted the captain, "'my seconds would have waited, and not seeing me would have come on towards the Gorby. I can only conclude that they have been unable to get here.' And as for Count Timoshev, without finishing his sentence, Captain Servadac, thinking it just probable that the Count, as on the previous evening, might come by water, walked the ridge of rock that overhung the shore, in order to ascertain if the Dobrina were anywhere in sight. But the sea was deserted, and for the first time the Captain noticed that, although the wind was calm, the waters were unusually agitated, and seethed and foamed as though they were boiling. It was very certain that the yacht would have found a difficulty in holding her own in such a swell. Another thing that now struck Servadac was the extraordinary contraction of the horizon. Under ordinary circumstances his elevated position would have allowed him a radius of vision of at least five and twenty miles in length. But the terrestrial sphere seemed, in the course of the last few hours, to have become considerably reduced in volume, and he could now see for a distance of only six miles in every direction. Meantime, with the agility of a monkey, Ben Zuf had clambered to the top of a eucalyptus, and from his lofty perch was surveying the country to the south as well as towards both Tennis and Mustaganum. On descending, he informed the captain that the plain was deserted. "'We'll make our way to the river, and get over to Mustaganum,' said the captain. The shallop was not more than a mile and a half from the meadow, but no time was to be lost if the men were to reach the town before nightfall. Though still hidden by heavy clouds, the sun was evidently declining fast, and what was equally inexplicable, it was not following the oblique curve that in these latitudes and at this time of year might be expected, but was sinking perpendicularly on the horizon. As he went along, Captain Servadac pondered deeply. Perchance some unheard-of phenomenon had modified the rotary motion of the globe, or perhaps the Algerian coast had been transported beyond the equator into the southern hemisphere. Yet the earth, with the exception of the alteration in its convexity, in this part of Africa at least, seemed to have undergone no change of any very great importance. As far as the eye could reach, the shore was, as it had ever been, a succession of cliffs, beach, and arid rocks, tinged with a red ferruginous hue. To the south, if south, in this inverted order of things it might still be called, the face of the country also appeared unaltered and some leagues away the peaks of the Merdea Mountains still retained their accustomed outline. Presently a rift in the clouds gave passage to an oblique ray of light that clearly proved that the sun was setting in the east. "'Well, I'm curious to know what they think of all this at Mustaganum,' said the captain. "'I wonder, too, what the Minister of War will say when he receives a telegram informing him that his African colony has become not morally but physically disorganized.' and that the cardinal points are at variance with ordinary rules, and that the sun in the month of January is shining down vertically upon our heads. Ben Zuf, whose ideas of discipline were extremely rigid, at once suggested that the colony should be put under the surveillance of the police, that the cardinal points should be placed under restraint, and that the sun should be shot for breach of discipline. Meantime they were both advancing with the utmost speed. The decompression of the atmosphere made the specific gravity of their bodies extraordinarily light, and they ran like hares and leaped like chamois. 
Leaving the devious windings of the footpath, they went as a crow would fly across the country. Hedges, trees, and streams were cleared at a bound, and under these conditions Ben Zuf felt that he could have overstepped Montmartre at a single stride. The earth seemed as elastic as the springboard of an acrobat. They scarcely touched it with their feet, and their only fear was lest the height to which they were propelled would consume the time which they were saving by their shortcut across the fields. It was not long before their wild career brought them to the right bank of the Shelliff. Here they were compelled to stop, for not only had the bridge completely disappeared, but the river itself no longer existed. Of the left bank there was not the slightest trace, and the right bank, which on the previous evening had bounded the yellow stream as it murmured peacefully along the fertile plain, had now become the shore of a tumultuous ocean, its azure waters extending westwards far as the eye could reach, and annihilating the tract of country which had hitherto formed the district of Mostaganum. The shore coincided exactly with what had been the right bank of the Shelliff, and in a slightly curved line ran north and south, whilst the adjacent groves and meadows all retained their previous positions. But the river bank had become the shore of an unknown sea. Eager to throw some light upon the mystery, Servadac hurriedly made his way through the oleander bushes that overhung the shore, took up some water in the hollow of his hand, and carried it to his lips. "'Salt as brine!' he exclaimed as soon as he had tasted it. "'The sea has undoubtedly swallowed up the western part of Algeria.' "'It will not last long, sir,' said Ben Zuf. "'It is probably only a severe flood.' The captain shook his head. "'Worse than that, I fear, Ben Zuf,' he replied with emotion. "'It is a catastrophe that may have very serious consequences. "'What can have become of all my friends and fellow-officers?' "'Ben Zuf was silent. "'Rarely had he seen his master so much agitated, "'and though himself inclined to receive these phenomena "'with philosophic indifference, "'his notions of military duty caused his countenance "'to reflect the captain's expression of amazement.' But there was little time for Servadac to examine the changes which a few hours had wrought. The sun had already reached the eastern horizon, and just as though it were crossing the ecliptic under the tropics, it sank like a cannonball into the sea. Without any warning, day gave place to night, and earth, sea, and sky were immediately wrapped in profound obscurity. End of Book One, Chapter Five. Recording by Eric Longman, Marietta, Georgia.